that's saying. Hey, I wonder um, what you're like when you meet important people. I mean, do you get a little bit nervous? Do you wonder what kind of words you should use or how you could speak? You know, I often do. I think if I'm meeting a doctor, you know, I think uh, maybe should I say, call them doctor or should I just ask them their first name or, uh, you know, doctor someone or, you know, you, could, you want to use the right terminology and you want to do it well. You know, I always uh, find people from different nationalities uh, really treat their pastors differently, you know, um, to what Aussies do. We're uh, pretty relaxed. But, you know, uh, some people, I've been to people's houses in, in the past as the pastor, and they give you all the food and they don't even, you've got to be careful, otherwise they won't have any people from other cultures because they think you're so important because you're the pastor. They, they'll call you, you know, oh, Pastor Jonathan. And uh, I, I think it's very nice because they see me as an important person. But you don't need to worry the rest of you. But, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting, you know, they, they see that. Uh, when you meet important people and you think, I wonder how I would respond. It reminds me of my brother. He's a, I've told you about him. He's in VIP protection with the federal police. And so he looks after important people. And just at the, uh, there was a, I think it was a, not the latest G20 forum, but they had a, a gathering um, about a year ago now with all the major you know, political leaders came and uh, Tony and Cherie Blair, uh, Blair sorry, came and they came to Melbourne and my brother was on looking after them and they said, oh, we want to go to church one Sunday. And so my brother organised with the church, uh, a Catholic church in uh, South Yarra, where they would go, and, he, and my brother often takes um, other uh, VIP people there. And uh, so he rang the priest and he said, I'm going to have, you know, uh, Tony and Cherie Blair coming this, this Sunday. And they said, that's fine, that'll be all right. I'll, uh, we'll just put them off to the left. And, and they came and people gathered in the service and one, uh, they were sitting down just in one of the rows and uh, there was a bit of a spot over in some lady's regular seat. And she... <laughs> She sort of wasn't going to be blocked by people that were almost taking her seat. So she just sort of moved in and, you know, pushed her way past. <laughs> and then my brother said it was really amusing as she looked back and saw who she'd just pushed past and she almost <laughs> died. So the Prime Minister of England was fine, <laughs> I think. <laughs> they didn't mind at all. But it's nerve-wracking when you meet people, important people. I just, as we start today, this message, and as we start to look at these words, I just want you to have that ringing in your mind. How will I come to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? How do I approach him? Uh, with what kind of words do I need to come and, and what kind of credentials do I have to have to come to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? We're looking this morning in Luke chapter 1, and if you'd like to turn there with me, that would be great. Luke chapter 1 and verse 57 uh, is where it talks about John the Baptist is, is born. And we'll just read that first passage together, and then we'll um, continue right through uh, to Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, uh, verse 7 this morning. That's where we're going to head. But let's just read this first section which talks about John the Baptist is born. So Luke chapter 1 and verse 57. 
Now, it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, and it was a boy. The word spread quickly to her neighbours and relatives that the Lord had been very kind to her, and everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, all the relatives and friends came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father, but Elizabeth said, No, his name is John. What, they exclaimed? There is no one in all your family by that name. So uh, they asked for the baby's father, communicating to him by making gestures. And he motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, His name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again and began praising God. Wonder fell upon the whole neighbourhood and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, I wonder what this child will turn out to be. For the hand of the Lord is surely upon him in a special way. Last week we looked together at um, the signs that something big was about to take place. Um, The birth announcements of John and Jesus were indicators that God was on the move. God was about to do something incredible. And it was indicators that God had not forgotten his people. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And here were some indicators that God was at work in these birth announcements of John the Baptist and Jesus. And we saw that what the last verse of the Old Testament was saying, that he would bring someone, the prophet Elijah, and he would turn the father's hearts to the children. And and this was about to be fulfilled. He would prepare the way for the saviour. Then when Gabriel came to Mary, the readers who were reading Luke's gospel must have just been read it with excitement. You know, the saviour is coming. Mary heard the news and um, the, angel, the angel told her that her relative, Elizabeth, was pregnant. Now, you've got to think about Mary. She would have been all, all alone with you know, Joseph, not, not, not really knowing, waiting for him to have confirmation as well. And so she ran to Elizabeth because she had heard that she was with a child. And Elizabeth knew of Mary's pregnancy because the angel had told her as well. And they spent time together. They talked about the things they'd seen the announcements that they'd read from Gabriel. And it must have been just an incredible time, that three months for them, sharing. And it says that they they were together for three months and then she went back home. And it's possible that Mary uh, was, was here when Elizabeth gave birth to her son. What, what an incredible time for them. They were seeing the signs that God was on the move and they were sharing together. And here... In these verses, we see that a promise has been fulfilled. A baby is born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. It says that when it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had been merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. What a joy it must have been for Elizabeth and Zechariah to receive their son. In, In those days, William Barclay, he says that the birth of a child, like today... It was a great occasion, an incredible time of joy, and especially, especially if the child was a boy, it was incredible. 
uh, he writes, When the time of the birth was near, the friends and the local musicians gathered around the house. When the birth was announced, it was as if it, it, if it was a boy, the musicians started to play and sing. And there was universal congratulation and rejoicing. But if it was a girl, the musicians went silently and regretfully away. Come on, this is what happened in those days. But for them, this was a moment of joy. It was a boy. So there were so many reasons why this was great news for them. Um, They were filled with joy, firstly, because in their old age, with no hope of ever having a child, they received what, what was promised to them, a baby. Just to have a baby was even off their radar, and now they had one. That was a joy. Secondly, it was a boy, so they celebrated because of that. And thirdly, this boy was to be the special baby the angel Gabriel had talked about. He would bring joy to people all around. It said at his birth he will bring joy. That's what the angel said, and look at the joy around it now. They said he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born, that he would persuade many Israelites to turn to the Lord, and he will precede the coming of the Lord, the promised one. He'd be preparing the people for his coming. No wonder they were happy. They rejoiced at the birth of John. And then in verse 59 it says, when the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony and they wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. Now look, naming a child was very important in those days because the names of of people had meanings that really were significant. And what made it uh, worse uh, what made it bad for uh, Elizabeth was she was told, you know, uh, Zechariah had been told what the name was, but this custom was that somebody from the family had to be named after this newborn child. And so what made it worse for her was that the neighbours and the relatives were all gathering around and saying, hey, this is what we wanted to call it. You've got to call this baby Zechariah after his father. Now, my brother, same VIP protection guy, he married an Italian, and her name is Francesca. Before she got married, Francesca Vacica. So that's the Italian name, hey? And her, um, her father's name is Vito, Vito Vacica. And his father's name is Vito, Vito Vacica. And when I go to their family gatherings, uh, I walk around and just about everybody's name is Vito. It was really good if you forget people's names, you know. <laughs> Vito? No, no, no. Uh, but in their family, you know, you name your, your firstborn son after your father and, uh, or, or Vito seemed to be a family name. And it happened then in, in their family. And this was common there too. Um, and, you know, we found when Mandy and I had, had kids, uh, we, we decided that we wouldn't tell anyone what our names of our kids would be, apart from like our parents, you know, and uh, maybe brothers, sisters, some of them we wouldn't, because if you shared with them, they said, oh, no, we've got that name. We're gonna, we've always wanted that name. And we thought, oh. Or someone else said, that name, you know, <laughs> and we thought, oh, maybe it's not so good. So we thought, no, let's just keep it to ourselves. Now, so I'm just letting you feel a little bit what she must have been feeling like, Elizabeth. Everyone's saying, you've got to call him Zach. You've got to call him Zach. She's saying, no, no, uh, his name's John. And, and so this is what it says in verse 60. But Elizabeth said, no, 
His name is John. In verse 61, what? They exclaimed. There's no one in all your family by that name. So they did what any, you know, present-minded person would do who talked to a mother about the name of the child and there's confusion. You ask the father. So, no. They asked the father. And so they used gestures, it says in verse 62, to ask the baby... Uh, the baby's father, what they wanted to name him. Notice here the fact that they used gestures. Now, remember, he couldn't speak, but it seems that because they used gestures, he, he, it's possible that he probably couldn't hear as well. Because if you have to use gestures to someone, normally you just say, hey, John, what do you, you, know, you want to call it? What do you want to call him, Zachariah? You want to call him Zachariah after you, or what else do you want to call him? But they had to gesture. You know, what do you... So he must have been not only unable to hear, but unable to speak as well for these nine months. And uh, he motions, it says in verse 63, for a writing tablet. And to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Now, he confirmed the name by writing it. Now, I think the tablet must have been like a, a wooden block with wax, a lining of wax over the top of it. And he got a writing implement and into the wax he wrote, his name is John. You know what John means? We talked about this last time. It means God has been gracious or God has shown favour. His name is John. To an old couple, unable to conceive, to a world longing for a saviour, he writes those simple words onto a block. And instantly it says in verse 64... Zechariah could speak again and he began praising God. The neighbours and the relatives are already shocked. He hadn't named him Zach and then after that, the shock was even greater. Zechariah speaks again and he begins for the first time in nine months and he's out, of his, uh, out of his mouth doesn't come, you know, oh, his name's John, but it comes praise, just flowing out to his God. He gives him praise coming right out. I want you to think about that. Zechariah's original disbelief in Gabriel's promise has now been replaced with overwhelming praise to his God. Remember, he, he doubted him first up. And that's why he was struck you know, uh, dumb and un- unable to speak for nine months. But as he was struck dumb and then as he realised what's happened to him, he must have then grown in faith then when he realised that Elizabeth has conceived and is going to have a child, his faith grew stronger. And then as the baby is born and it's, it's a boy, his faith grew stronger. And as he wrote on the thing, his name is John, bursting out comes faith and trust in the living God because he has done what he promised. And he just floods with praise. I think many of us, I like that. Maybe we're like Zechariah, been following God for ages and ages, like we said last week, you know, and then all of a sudden we come up against a, another thing and we, God says, I want to do this in your life or I want you to go this direction or trust in this thing. And we say, oh, God, I don't believe you can do it. After all our trusting, just like Zechariah, he was a priest offering prayers on behalf of Israel and then all of a sudden... Uh, when God said he would do this, he doubted. Uh, 
But for many of us, as we've continued to look and to trust in God's promises, our faith has continued to grow. And this morning as we gather and as we sing praises to, to God, the praise is loud because God has been good. We've found him to be faithful in our lives. We've found him to be true to his promises. That when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, it's true. When he says, I, I, I love you so much that I sent my son, we've, we've been forgiven and we've known that. And praise fills us. It is fitting for the godly to praise God. Verse 65 says, Awe fell upon the whole neighbourhood, and the news of what happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, What will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. These verses here just tell us that there were two clear responses to the people around at, at John's birth. There were two things that as these people witnessed the birth of, of John and the loosening of Zechariah's tongue, they responded in two ways. First of all, it says there was a, a great sense of awe. Awe fell upon the whole neighbourhood. Awe literally means fear. And this is a kind of healthy godly fear that comes from being in the presence of the divine. They could see God was at work. Tongues were being loosened. Names were being given you know, in the most incredible ways. Stories were being told about the way these births had been announced and they were thinking God is on the move. God is at work. You know, when you see God at work in our daily lives, when you see him at work in mighty ways, I wonder whether you have experienced this kind of awe and this sense of, wow, we're in the presence of God. I've, I've sensed it on many occasions. Times when we're together at church, worshipping God, and I've sensed in such a strong way as all of us together, trusting in God, appraising him and proclaiming him, the truth sometimes just comes that God is here in an incredible way. Sometimes when I've been uh, uh, you know, at a prayer meeting, I've sensed his awesome presence. Sometimes in my own quiet times. Sometimes as I've uh, you know, just had times talking with people about big challenges that have came and we've just sensed God has been speaking and right there with us at those times. The awe of God. They responded and they looked at these events and they were just, wow, God is here. Secondly, they, it says they thoughtfully, they reflected on these events. They reflect on the question, on what had happened, asking questions like, what will this child turn out to be? Now, they started pondering, sort of asking the deeper questions about what was going on here with all the things that they've seen. And the word here, reflected, is describing the kind of people's reaction. And it's the same word that describes what Mary, uh, how Mary reacted in Luke chapter 2 and verse 19, where it says that when she heard the words of the shepherds and what they'd told them, she quietly treasured these things in her heart and thought about them often. She reflected. She thought about what it meant. I think these two responses of, uh, you know, recognising God's presence and just being in awe of the living God and slowing down enough to reflect and ponder what God is doing are things that are so lacking in our society today, often in many churches, in many people's lives. 
the busyness of text messages and emails and things coming and sales here and quick things we've got to do have often meant that we're always available and never are we unavailable to ponder the incredible things of God. Uh, People can always burst in, it seems, and things and achievements and accomplishments can fill up our days so much that we don't feel like we've achieved anything if we haven't gotten the most out of every moment. Oh, Mary, she pondered what the shepherds had said. And the people, as they saw these reactions, started to think bigger about things of what God might be on the move about. I just want to say, you Christmas card writers, you, you, you know, uh, lights lighting up the, the front. You know, these are great things and we love them and we do that. But don't let the busyness of the things that go around the Christmas season uh, stop you from pondering and reflecting with incredible, overwhelming sense of awe that God has come to this earth and he lives in your heart if you put your trust in him. Don't get too busy this Christmas time to think about the most important things in life. You know, if you're travelling fast on the highway... You've got to leave a fair bit of gap between you and the car in front, don't you? Just in case a kangaroo or something comes out, you need time to stop and slow down. And in our life, I just strongly argue for you, the busier you are, the more pondering you need, the more time for reflection to think. And uh, uh, if you are busy, get intentional about the times that you ponder. Nail them down, put them in the most important times of the day, most important, the freshest times of the day where you can reflect on God's word and you can reflect on what he wants to do with your life. I want to encourage you in that. The significance of God's love is clearly demonstrated at Christmas, so don't hurry through it. You know, Zechariah's praise just burst forth and why don't we have a look at this here in verse uh, 68 onwards, it says, uh, verse 67 onwards, it says, Then his father Zechariah f- was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. And here's his song of praise Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited his people and redeemed them. He has sent us a mighty saviour from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant with them, the covenant he gave to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness forever. And you, my little son, you will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. And then it says, John grew up and became strong in spirit. He lived out in the wilderness until he began his public ministry in Israel. A father rejoices in the birth of his son. You know, John would grow up and he would be marked differently from other men. You know what he would, would wear 
in Mark chapter 1, verse 6, we read that he wore clothing of camel's hair and he had a leather belt and a, a, around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. What a weird man. You know, this is kind of showing that he was a, the prophet Elijah that, that had been foretold. He was coming and, and, and these things that he did was clearly showing to everyone he was God's prophet. He had courage. There were times when he stood in Luke uh, chapter 3 and verse 7 and he looked at the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he said, you brood of vipers. He had courage. He just said right to them, spat it out. He said, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He had humility. Now in John chapter 3 and verse 3, he said, he must become greater and I must become less when Jesus was gaining uh, many followers and many of his followers were going to follow Jesus. He knew that his role was always to point people to Christ. He had passion. You know, John believed what he preached and he preached it with passion and people came from all over. Mark chapter 1 and verse 5 says, the whole Judean countryside and all the people came to him. And what was his message? His message was, hey, people, stop living in sin. Stop going your own way. Stop getting caught up in your own righteousness. No, turn from your sin and repent. Turn from it and repent. Be baptised. Be baptised. And to the people who thought they were right in God's eyes by obeying all the rules, he was saying, no, turn from your sin, repent and come to the living God. Be baptised. Jesus would come and baptise people and fill them with his spirit. John was pointing them to what Jesus would do. What a man. What a gift from God. What a sign that God was breaking into our world. Let's continue to read from chapter 2. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He travelled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was obviously pregnant at this time. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the village. You know, the opening words of this famous section of the Bible uh, just uh, reveal to us um, the greatest, like the setting for the greatest story of all. It reveals to us the historical events around this incredible time where Jesus was born. It says, at the time of the Roman Emperor, Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. The ancient historians, they tell us that Caesar, Augustus, was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And uh, 
Caesar Augustus, he was a, a born fighter who really just clawed his way to power. And uh, he, he was someone who clawed his way to power by defeating Antony and Cleopatra. And then, because of his incredible uh, genius and because of his force and um, aggressive use of power, he gave the, the empire this solidness, this, um, this solidness that was to endure for centuries um, as, a, as a leader. He was the first Caesar to be called Augustus when the Roman Senate voted to give him that title. Now, Augustus means holy um, and revered. Um, and up to that time, the title was only used exclusively for gods. It would only refer to the gods. And historian John Buchan records uh, that when Caesar Augustus died, men actually comforted themselves, reflecting that Augustus was a, was a god and that gods do not die. So they said, it's all right, he, he can't have died. So I want you to get this picture. The world had at its helm... Uh, a widely accepted saviour and God, small g. And here Luke, as he starts chapter 2, he's a historian and a theologian. He wants us to see um, that in this way that there was a, a, a false God who was ruling at that time when Jesus came into the world, when the real saviour came. And the contrast here couldn't be any more uh, different. Uh, a ruler, or, or an authority that was doing it by force and clawing his way to be the ruler. And here, Jesus will be born in completely different circumstances. It says in verse 4, And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He travelled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. You see, Caesar, in his relentless um, arm, was reaching right across the whole region and the whole empire, and it squeezed even to this tiny little town named Bethlehem, which was insignificant. And so a village carpenter and his expected uh, bride-to-be uh, bride were forced to travel to, the, to his hometown where he, he was from. And they were forced to go there because they needed to register for taxation purposes. We think it's, it's bad when we have to line up at Centrelink or fill out all those forms. Well, they had to travel uh, 130 kilometres um, to get back so they could be registered for taxation purposes. And it was uh, a miserable journey. Mary was full term. And uh, it meant that they had to travel slowly, every one of those 130 kilometres. Perhaps she was fortunate. Uh, they had a, borrowed an animal to carry her. But whatever was the situation, she travelled through the dust and through the cold of winter, um, bearing the distressing knowledge that she might have her first baby far from home, far from friends, far from family, and nearly everyone who cared about her. It seemed that um, from the eyes of the world, Joseph and Mary were insignificant. They were just insignificant nobodies in a nothing town, um, doing what they had to do because they were peasants. They were poor, they were uneducated, they were of no account, but 
Notice Mary, she understood who she was. She really did. Early on, when Mary had learned uh, that she was pregnant with the Son of God, she met Elizabeth and she sang this great magnificent. magnificent. She began those words back earlier in chapter 1 where she responded in verse 46. She said, Oh, how I praise the Lord, how I rejoice in God my Saviour, for he took notice of this lowly servant girl and now generation after generation will call me blessed. So as Mary's walking along, you know, pregnant on the back of of an animal, you know, going along there, cold, a long, long journey, she realised the significance that God was using a lowly servant girl. And then towards the end of her, her song, she, she says in, in verse 51, his mighty arm does tremendous things, how he scatters the proud and the haughty ones. He has taken princes from their th- thrones and exalted the lowly. The ones that were in power thought they were in charge. But through these poor, uneducated people, God was at work. Joseph and Mary, I think, give us a a clear picture of the mystery of grace. Uh, The king doesn't come to the proud, to the powerful. He comes to the poor and to the powerless. And as it is so often in life, things were not always as they seemed in that world. Because humble Mary and Joseph, he was... They were the adoptive father and birth mother of the king of kings. 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah, he'd prophesied in in Micah 5 and verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. In other words, you're such an insignificant town, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, whose origins are from the distant path. In an out-of-the-way town with uneducated people, God was coming. And here they are, looking like they were forced to pay taxes, looking like they were helpless pawns in this government um, ruling. But they arrived with the living God in her womb. As her heart beat, Jesus' heart was beating inside her and he came to our world. Let's have a look at what it says in verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son, wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Uh, Kent Hughes writes, The baby Mary carried was not a Caesar, was a man who would become, uh, not a Caesar, a man who would become God, but a far greater wonder, a true God who would become man. And as he was born, the Son of God came to earth in human form. And he was born in a stable where the accommodation in Bethlehem was really not very good. It was primitive. The, the Eastern Inn was a, one of the crudest arrangements that you could find. Typically, it was a, a series of stalls built on the inside of an um, enclosure and opening onto a common yard where the animals were kept. 
all the innkeeper would provide was fodder for the animals and a fire to cook on. And on that cold day when um, th there were expectant parents who had just arrived, nothing was available. They couldn't even find a place for them, not even one of these crude stalls that were there. And uh, despite the urgency, no one would provide them a room. So it was probably in the common courtyard where all the travellers' animals were being kept, where they, uh, where they stayed. And it was probably here when, where Mary gave birth to Jesus. She cried out in pain in a stinking barnyard. Uh, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation, the scene of utter help helplessness would have seemed like everything was going wrong. And yet the saviour of the world had come. So question this morning for you and I, what do we need to come to this saviour this morning? What kind of uh, words must we use or what traits must we have? I think God has clearly shown us through these passages that God doesn't work through the proud and the powerful. If you think you are great in your own eyes, if you think you are mighty, then God's not going to be able to come to you. But if you recognise your humble estate, if you heed the words of John the Baptist, who said, turn from your sin, uh, repent, come to me, then you're ready to open your heart to the king, king of kings. And though your life may be in trouble right now, though you might feel like it's not a stinking barnyard for you, but there are really uh, so many things going wrong in your life, with the living Son of God, the one who lived his life and died on the cross and rose again and now promises to come into the lives of those who ask him, who turn from their sin and turn to him in repentance, no matter what your circumstances, the living God, the one who created the heavens and the earth and who is coming again, can come into your life into your circumstances. This morning as we close, my question is, have you asked the living God to come into your sinful life to forgive you, to wipe your slate clean, to flood your heart, to give you hope in a future through his dying on the cross and rising again. This morning he speaks to us all and says, there is no other way. Come, let's pray, shall we? Oh God, this Christmas time, we want to be those that ponder, ponder the mighty acts and works that you have done because you love us. And God, to us, your people, we want to thank you for all that you've done. And to a world that's lost in sin and error pining, that's longing to know the good news, we just pray that as we ponder that, we would be seeking in every way to share with others the great things you've done. 
And God, this morning, we recognise afresh our desperate need for you to be our Lord and King. And we say thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.